Hey guys, you like science? You like learning? We can't cover everything on this podcast, certainly not as in-depth as I'd like to all of the time. Well, here's an important topic you need to know about. Water. Do you have it? Are you drinking it? Where is it coming from? All sorts of important questions you need to know. There is now the new Waterline podcast, which is an initiative of the Israel New Tech, a part of the Israeli Ministry of Economy and Industry. Waterline podcast aims to bring the latest scientific advances in technological solutions while exploring economic models and identifying key players in the global effort to secure water sources, create efficient water usage, and make water safe for everyone. I just checked out a really cool, interesting episode called Want Not, Waste Not, Wastewater. It's all about what happens to your wastewater. It's going to waste a lot of times, but does it need to? Absolutely not. What happens to all that discarded wastewater? Once treated, it has uh, economic and ecological value that can even drive nation's economies. It could even light up your house. How? Find out on that episode of the Waterline Podcast. Search Waterline Podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. Today I stopped through Oakland University in Rochester, Michigan to talk to Todd Shackelford about sperm competition, which is one of those topics just absolutely amazing. It just has a little of something for everybody. It's it's very thought-provoking. It talks it tells us a lot about um, our past and how we got here, a lot about animal behavior, a, a lot of at first very counterintuitive sort of things about how the world works and how reproduction works and it's also uh hilarious and lots of fun life is real crazy sometimes and sperm competition is a very good illustration of that so i hope you guys enjoy this episode because i imagine this is a topic that we'll be talking about um in many podcasts to come so thank you for listening and enjoy are we yes where are we here why are we here not entirely clear we are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all it's immensely bizarre here we are hello everybody and welcome to the here we are podcast i'm shane moss and i'm here with todd shackleford i'm at the university of oakland in um where are we? Rochester, uh, Michigan? Yep, Oakland um, University in Rochester, Michigan. Right outside of, uh, of Detroit. And I was actually um, referred uh, to Todd by the, the first guest um, that I had on the show, Marty Hazelton. Um, I, I, was, I gave her a list of the cities that I was going to be going through, and, um, and she was well aware of my uh, fondness for talking about um, sperm for an unusually long time <laughs> with people and so she's like i know just the guy yeah, sure. for you sure you should get a hold of uh todd shackleford um and and so today we're going to be talking amongst other things we're going to be talking about sperm competition which uh if you don't know you you are in for a treat it's one of these kind of irresistible um topics that's um 
not only mind blowing, but um, but uh, kind of very um, very funny ideas to think about, and at the same time, like it can really um, it really teaches us a lot about life that's under the sure. surface that um, that we don't know about. So I was actually looking through. Um, some of your publications, you have some of the best titles of um, of papers that I've ever seen, which include um, j- just a couple of your more recent ones. Men's benefit provisioning mate retention behavior mediates the relationship between their agreeableness and their oral sex behaviors. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> that's intriguing. Um, and then here's another one. Do women perform fellatio as a mate retention behavior? Um, so I'm already incredibly intrigued. I, w- I was looking through. You have um, papers dating back to what the, um, the mid-90s. So what was your background? So, uh, well, first, thank you very much, Shane, for, for coming. Oh, to see absolutely. Me. And, yeah, Thanks I, for, I appreciate it. And, um, sorry, I was running late and I had horrible... Um, dumb morning radio things that I had to do before this, and um, and so I finally made it. Say la vie. Glad you did. So <clears throat> my background is in psychology. Um, in uh, 1993, sorry, 1989, I actually started at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque, and really I went there because it wasn't Oklahoma, uh, where <laughs> which is where I grew up, um, and they offered me a, a reasonable scholarship, and I'm one of those kids that had to pay for education. Um, they gave me a good scholarship, and so We're I said, in Oklahoma, uh, Tulsa. I'm from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I left um, at 18 and haven't been back since. Uh, well, I've, I've visited. Are a you couple kidding of times. me? Yeah, I've visited do, a couple of times. You um, do you enjoy it a little more or appreciate it a little more now that you go back? Or are you still like, no, thank you? <laughs> um, <laughs> because I'm from a small town in La Crosse, Wisconsin, yeah, on the border of Minnesota and Iowa, and my whole life I just hated it there i couldn't wait to leave i finally got out now that i'm older and i'm like less angry about my upbringing and everything i kind of appreciate some aspects of it and i wonder if i just would have if it was just like almost in my biology where i would have just disliked anywhere that i was um from if that was part of my personality but yeah i mean i don't know i mean uh i mean when i go back you know i enjoy you know seeing my family uh but I actually very quickly realized why I left. Yeah. Um, so I don't miss it, not one bit. Um, and it reminds me of what a good choice I made um, leaving. Um, it was incredibly, you know, close-minded, still is. Yeah. Um, you know, evolution, for example, wasn't something that was taught. In fact, it was explicitly discouraged um, for people to, you know, to think about this. I had a, I went to a public school yeah. on Alaska, um, on Alaska Public High School, and I... Um, I had a chemistry teacher who, well, in his defense, it was for extra credit. It wasn't actually part of the curriculum. He wrote um, an insane um, paper on how um, because Adam and Eve were perfect and we all, so we all came from these perfect beings, but they were related. And so it's because of this incest has made everyone dumber and that's why we're not perfect today with okay. adam and eve we came from these perfect people but unfortunately do these insect so this was a scientist this wasn't right. like some english teacher or something right. like that this is a right. scientist in my town that's what they were teaching yeah sure yeah i mean i had right similar experiences and it's not that you know 
it's not that it's you know necessarily stupidity it's just ignorance um, right. you know and ignorance is no crime and i've actually have thought about going back to oklahoma sort of just as a way to give back to the community in which i was raised just to try to educate um and i've gone back and given talks and stuff like that mm-hmm. uh, but it, you know i'm so glad for me for my children that we don't live there any longer right it's I mean, part of part of the reason why I'm doing this podcast actually is because um, is because I I went through a lot of uh, I I was kind of an angsty teenager and and a lot of um, a lot of my development was um, I mean, I I kind of stopped believing in religion very, very, very early on. Uh, I was like nine when I finally was like, no, I don't. But no one else around. Uh, like I didn't realize that was a thing that you could do. Like everyone right. else was yeah. into this. And so I thought I was like a crazy person right. for a while. Right. And, um, and so I had a lot of resentment about that, but, but, um, actually learning about evolutionary psychology and biology has really made me more sympathetic to kind of how these beliefs, um, can be started in the first place and how maybe we do have kind of these instincts for sure, sure. Uh, that drive this behavior. And also it's helped me um, want to go back and be like, I bet I could explain this to like my family and other people that I care about in a way that they could understand. Like maybe no one's ever taken the time to explain some of these ideas. So, right, right. I mean, I had a very similar experience, yeah. And I mean, I, you know, do have a glimmer of hope that, you know, some of the people, um, you know, that do have very strong religious beliefs that are inconsistent with what we know about the real world, you know, I do have some glimmer of hope that some of them are reachable. Um, but, you know, it's tough when the only people they talk to are each other. And mm-hmm. so, like you say, you know, you feel like a real outsider if you don't have any kind of, if you don't share the same beliefs, which yeah. I didn't either. You know. Absolutely. I mean... I mean, I think it's a. I think it's really easy for any of us to get involved in a bubble and, and sure, no doubt, um, be close. I mean, I I sometimes read some of um, some of these science journals that are like, um, you know, have these really interesting, mind blowing things to that can really um, enlighten us. But sometimes they're written in a way that it's just so hard to understand. Right. And I mean, that's another reason why I'm I'm kind of doing this. And sure. And um, and sometimes I I feel like uh like these guys are just trading. They're just checking each other's homework. No right. one. No, no one's. No, this isn't getting yeah. to anyone who's right. actually going to benefit um from this. Yeah. You know? No, and I'm 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 quite sure I'm guilty of the same. Yeah. Right. You know, speaking to one another in you know, special languages that <laughs> Right, which is why I also appreciate the opportunity to you know, to talk, you know, sort of um in this kind of situation, you know, on this podcast and I appreciate you being here. I did I was looking through some of your earlier work just because I, I noticed that you did um some stuff with um with uh, uh with Marty uh Hazelton and yeah. so I, I was I was just looking you had something um Oh shoot! Where where was it? It was a different one. Is about um, is about oh here it is. Um, adaptations, ex adaptations, and spandrels. Yes. Um, but this was back in ninety uh, eight when I first heard about spandrels. It was something that really kind of blew my mind and um, sure and made me think about things differently. Could you uh, could you talk a little bit about uh? I don't know. I I know sure. you probably. This is a long time ago, and you've probably gotten away sure. from no. uh, a lot of this work. But 
Yeah, I mean, this was, uh, well, uh, Marty and I actually uh, overlapped in graduate school with, with David Buss. So we actually spent a couple of years, I think it was a couple of years, um, in the same lab. And so um, um, this was one of the projects or one of the papers that came out of um, sort of lab meetings, basically, where we, uh, Marty and I and another uh, student at the time, um, uh, and David Buss, we would just sort of talk about things that were, you know, sort of in the air or things that, you know, we had heard recently. And I mean, one of the things that that article was intended to do was to address this, the misconception that had been promulgated very strongly by Stephen Jay Gould, uh, that um, evolutionary psychologists, all they do is just point at things and say, that's an adaptation, that's an adaptation, that's an adaptation. Uh, and that we had no appreciation for the possibility of byproducts, uh, which are traits that sort of piggyback along with adaptations, but don't themselves have any kind of functional value. Um, so a good example of an adaptation might be, you know, um, the umbilical cord that delivers nutrients from the mother to the fetus. A byproduct of that ap- adaptation is the belly button. Um, now the belly button is not, you know, as far as we know, it doesn't serve any kind of function. It has no, no sort of uh, evolved purpose. Oh, it's actually, it's for doing shots out of, there is um, that. At- during yeah, college, right. <laughs> pretty important evolutionary function. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It actually, that's funny because people have actually, you know, pointed out things like, well, and then people do actually, you know, put belly button rings <laughs> in, and but, but you know, I think it's, you know, it's sort of more being silly. Uh, but, but you know, it's, so it's well, that's more of a spandrel function then once you're dressing up this kind of meaningless byproduct. Well, I mean, that's actually an interesting issue and one that we struggle with with this paper because uh, Gould actually used a variety of different terms to refer to these byproducts. He used Exaptations used. Um, he used spandrels. Used which is an architecture term. It is for listeners, which is yep. you'd probably be able to explain it better than me. So. Well, I mean, a spandrel, as best I understand it, was originally used to refer to sort of the the space uh, left when an arch uh, was um, constructed, um, so that in order to you know form an arch between two walls, you know, you have this object that you know uh, is inserted between them, and then you end up with some extra space left over. Um, and that then can be used for decorative work and for religious iconography and that sort of thing. Yeah, Google image spandrels yeah. for the listeners. Yeah. That's good examples. Yeah, so he basically was claiming that um, you know, evolutionary psychologists, what they think are adaptations are really just spandrels, or he also called them exaptations. Um, he used a variety of different terms. Um, and the problem for us was not so much the arguments you were making, which were not very interesting. I mean, they were um, just based on misunderstanding and, you know, sort of a misconception of what evolutionary psychology does. But the problem was he has a huge audience. Um, and to, I mean, to the extent that anybody in the United States knows anything about evolution, uh, it, it it's likely to be from Stephen Jay Gould. Right. Um, and of course, he had a long recurring, very well-traveled, you know, well-accessed, you know, um, uh, column. I think it was natural history. Um, and he writes beautifully. And that's the other thing is that he's, you know, he was, he was just a, you know, he was a wonderful writer. Um, and, um, so part of it was our attempt to sort of correct, um, a variety of misunderstandings about evolutionary psychology, including, uh, that, you know, we certainly do not, uh, just point at things and say, well, that's an adaptation because I say it's an adaptation. Right. I and mean, that there in fact is a, you know, a very meticulous process for, for, you know, collect, you know, for making a case for an adaptation. And, and, you know, for decades, people in evolutionary psychology have recognized that it's quite possible for a trait 
to be a byproduct of an adaptation. But if it is a byproduct, such as a spandrel, then that doesn't let you off the hook for discussing adaptation because now you're left having to, un- having to explain you know, the adaptation of which that trait is a byproduct. Um, right. So ultimately... Um, so, there's, yeah. so there's things... I, I, an example that I like um, is there's giraffe have this, um, this thing that kind of connects um, their... I believe it's their air path from their nose yes. to their mouth. And it goes basically all the way down the whole length of their neck and and basically it, rather than just going from the nose to the mouth which would be shorter and more efficient and and what had happened was that it kind of got hooked on this bone um and and as it evolved in the and and the um the neck grew it kind of got hooked down below on this and that's why it's so long so so uh, the wrong way to look at it would be like well, there must be a reason why it's that long, and and there must be something to do with efficiency. When really all that happened, it got hooked. And right. Byproduct. Right. Yes. The design of, and I think you're, I think you're referring to the laryngeal nerve. I think it's called in the giraffe, where it goes down. <laughs> Thank you. Yep. Yeah, I have yeah. terrible names. No, no, that. but but the idea is exactly right. Um, that it's a it's a foolish design. Um, it makes no sense and uh, looked at currently. But once you begin to understand the evolutionary history of giraffes for example, um, this particular species, then you can appreciate how it came to be, this inefficient you know, design. Um, that's right, it's a, it's a byproduct of the evolutionary history of the species um, and the way that these organs were built uh, in, in the ancestors of modern giraffes. So yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, uh, and so with this, I, I'm wondering to the extent that, that this term is used, um, and are there like, you consider some behaviors spandrels like for example um um pregnant women in their third trimester kind of they they get this new this whole new set of olfactory neurons that kind of get ripped out and then um replaced so that um when you have the child you smell a baby and that's like kind of this old evolutionary thing where this baby is the most important thing you're ever going to smell so you get this brand spanking new set of, of olfactory neurons. But in the meantime, there's kind of this construction work going on. And in the third trimester, women might find themselves thinking things are like uh, shoe polish smells good or, or mm. seems appealing or something like that. And um, when obviously they shouldn't trust their nose at that time. Um, and it's just uh, it's just a byproduct of this process would that behavior be considered like a spandrel like behavior or am i yeah not be understanding it completely yeah i mean that's uh well i I guess i would say that the way that evolutionary psychologists would think about it is that it's the uh the underlying the underlying machinery that drives uh the behavior is really the focus so in other words um a sociobiologist or a behavioral ecologist might focus on the actual behavior itself Whereas an evolutionary psychologist would focus on the underlying information processing mechanisms that generate that behavior. But I mean, the, the point is, is still, I and mean, it makes sense. I mean, basically the argument is to the extent that you have an adaptation um, that uh, generates um, behaviors for which that adaptation was not designed, uh, right. that may well be evidence of uh, byproduct of an adaptation, whether it's a spandrel or an exaptation. And I confess that having spent a lot of time reading through uh, Stephen Jay Gould's work, we never quite pinned down the difference between an, ad, an, 
an exaptation and a spandrel. Right. That's um, what I was kind of wondering about. Y- yeah. Um, so yeah, but I, but I think that's uh, right. That's an interesting way to think about. It. I mean, another topic that um, that has gotten a lot of um, play in terms of distinguishing adaptation from byproduct is something like uh, uh, rape in humans. Mm. Um, so there are, I mean, there are disagreements among uh, evolutionary psychologists about whether or not uh, rape is the product of evolved design. And of course, by design, I don't mean intelligently designed. I mean designed by natural selection. Um, or whether uh, whether rape may be produced as a byproduct of, for example, what happens when you combine you know adaptations that motivate aggress- aggression in men to take something, mm-hmm. and adaptations that motivate the pursuit of sexual variety or sexual novelty. Um, so it and it's and the jury's not out on this. I mean, I think there's I think it's not at all clear um, whether rape is the product of specialized psychological design selected by uh, evolution by natural selection or uh, whether rape may be the byproduct of a terrible convergence of two different sets of adaptations right because you would you would think it wouldn't be um terribly um socially beneficial considering that um it, you know i unlike what what people might think of of this you know old notion of a caveman hitting a woman over the head with a club and dragging her back to the cave right. and having his way um it, instead they're living in these close social groups and these uh, tribes and everyone kind of knows one another and is seeing each other every day uh i i would think it would be very hard to uh <laughs> rape someone and then just show up to work the next day to go out hunting and like hey guys uh, you guys weren't uh you guys have forgiven me what i did last right. you know that right. might make for some very social socially awkward uh, uh, settings and, and I would think that um, that there would almost be a higher cost to it back then than now where there's you know strangers and everything else but yeah I mean I think you're yeah I mean this is part of the issue is that um, you know this is generally the case that adaptations yes are there because they produced benefits over evolutionary time but uh, virtually every trait carries with it uh, you know a variety of costs as well and certainly um if rape is inflicted uh and you you can bet that there will be people in the community that are not pleased by this occurring right uh, in addition to the woman um her older brothers her you know uh, her father or older genetic relatives i mean even even a strange even in um like a, a very self-interested machiavellian world it's still you could still a guy benefit from rescuing a lady from from you know other or protecting women you know that's another trait that sure. you uh, look for so it it does it it does seem like it would be odd if that was um if that was helpful in any way in our yeah i mean and at at the same time you know there's i mean again i i think the data will be the final arbiter on this uh but I don't think it's an outrageous hypothesis. You know, the, the hypothesis that male psychology may include evolved design specifically to motivate rape. Mm. Um, given what we know about human behavior, I mean, we know that, um, you know, that particular classes of women are targeted. Um, that is, while, while, of course, any woman can be raped, uh, women who are raped, at least those that report it, are, are extraordinarily likely to be young, reproductive age women. Um, and they're also likely to be unmated. Um, and so there's a, you know, there's also some other work indicating uh, 
some other issues that have to be taken into account. For example, that the per concept, sorry, the, the per population risk of conception is actually about twice as high for rape as it is for consensual sex. So a woman is about 6%, uh, there's about a 6% probability of, of conception following rape uh, as contrasted with about a 3% probability of conception following consensual sex. I've always wondered why that is. I have seen yeah. that before. Do you? Yeah, I mean, well, there are several hypotheses. I mean, um, I think one of the most interesting hypotheses and one that I think, um, well, it, one hypothesis is that uh, male... And, and we recognize that yeah. this is a controversial subject matter and everything sure. else. And, and the re but it's... Let, let, let's not pretend that this doesn't exist. I mean, right. informing yeah. ourselves about this, these kind of topics um, can help us uh, shape the world in the, the way that we would um, like it. And, and so through understanding our instincts can help us kind of control or stop other people's um, behavior that we're deeming reprehensible, which in this case, obviously, uh, <laughs> we're very much against. Yeah, sure. I mean, my, what I, talk to my students about when I teach, and I really believe this, is that you know if there's something that we want to thwart or reduce or eliminate, we're probably going to be better off knowing more than knowing less about why it occurs. Um, but one hypothesis, and this may well get us into the topic of sperm competition, is that uh, males may actually adjust their ejaculates um, in the context of rape, in the context of sexual coercion. Um, we know that, that human males and the males of um, dozens of species are able to adjust uh, various parameters of their ejaculates um, very quickly um, so that it's possible uh, that this might be what's going on. Is, is there, um, is the, I read that, that there's um, also some adjustments when a, a male has been away from his spouse for, uh, you know, out of town traveling or um, something. And, and the idea is, is that um, like you might, uh, know that you have a loving wife and who's faithful and everything else, right. but, um, but your testicles don't know what she's been up to necessarily. And so, um, so, so you would, if you've been away from uh, a woman who has maybe been having an affair or something, you would want to, um, increase the amount of sperm to possibly, um, put more tickets in the lottery. I mean, that's, that's exactly right, and that's exactly what the data indicate. Um, not just for humans, but for literally hundreds and hundreds of species across many, many different taxa. I mean, um, what you find is that, uh, and this gets us into. Yeah, we, go ahead. We, we should maybe just let's. I think if we bring up, explain sperm competition right now, mm -hmm. and then we can loop back to this. Sure, and it might make it a little clearer for people. Absolutely. So the sperm competition theory is a, uh, a theory that was originally presented by uh, uh, Jeffrey Parker in the late 60s, early 70s. And, you know, the, the bottom line is to the extent that or when a female mates with more than one male within a sufficiently short period of time, she will then contain the sperm from different males. Those male sperm will inevitably compete for fertilization of the available egg or eggs. Um, and a lot of the early work on sperm competition theory um, focused on insects, and then subsequently a lot of work was done with birds and with a few other species. Um, and I mean, yeah. inse insects are so incredible when you read oh, about yeah. this stuff. What's your what's your favorite penis in the uh, in, in the all of the animal 
kingdom and insect world. And yeah, in the insect world, um, actually, is it a? I think it's a damselfly. Uh, yeah, yeah, the, the uh, old damselfly yeah. penis. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Google image right away. It, yeah. Explain what. Um, so I'll put this on my site, by the way. I'm actually thinking of the work by a guy called Jonathan Wage. I think is the way you pronounce his name. But this is work that was on. It was published, I think, in 1979. So it was a long time ago. But he published work on the um, the penis structure of this particular uh, fly. It's a, a damselfly, which actually has hooks on the end of it. And what happens is the male um, inserts his penis into the female's reproductive tract, and then these hooks actually function to, to pull out uh, an insemination from a previous male or to pull out the ejaculate from a previous male. Yeah, and they're kind of constructed like forceps as well to like kind of spread it open and start scooping out yeah. um, other guys. I mean, it's amazing. And there are some penises in the insect world that actually have little balloons on the end that actually blow up and by that uh, cause any ejaculate to sort of be pushed away uh, and pushed back. <laughs> Um, and then once the blow up occurs, uh, then the, the ejaculate starts to come out. Then and only then will the male um, ejaculate his sperm into the uh, female's reproductive tract. So, I mean, it's, it's amazing. That's incredible. I mean, uh, unfortunately for my girlfriend, I have to use my fingers to scoop out uh, right. other male sperm. I don't have the fancy. <laughs> yeah. um, although um, uh, humans seem to have um, some of these uh competition tools yes and i mean th i think this is controversial i mean controversial in the sense of it's intellectually controversial nevertheless sort of politically or socially controversial but but the bottom line is that uh people such as gordon gallup and and we've made um these kinds of arguments that the human penis uh, the human penis may actually in part be designed to remove uh the ejaculate of uh of a previous male um and a lot of the focus here and again let me be clear this is you know, this is just shy of just raw speculation. Uh, but uh, if you look at the shape of the penis, if you look at the the glands and uh, the sort of the the anatomical structure of the penis, one could make a case uh, that it's inserted and then as it's pulled back, uh, previous ejaculate would collect behind uh, the glands of the penis. Um, and Gordon Gallup and his colleagues actually did this with dildo, um, uh, dildo, fake vagina. Basically, I can't remember what the fancy name is but anyways it was dildo fake vagina and simulated were you, semen yeah. were you the one that um that did the um some you found the perfect semen recipe or the simulated uh, that he then semen? reports that he used that yeah that he <laughs> used and he like call you for your uh your semen recipe or something yeah he like he had i think they had already been fooling around with trying to get because i mean the thing is you have to try to get it if you want to make a case that this is mimics or in some way is analogous to real human semen then it's got a you know, it's got to have particular texture. It's got to feel normal. And, uh, you know, otherwise it's, you know, you sort of it's got to have similar viscosity. And so he had been fooling around with this and had seen uh, online, actually, apparently, I haven't seen this myself, but apparently there are many, many different recipes for creating this stuff. Um, apparently it's used pretty frequently in the porn industry uh, to make to make it appear as if there's a much larger ejaculate. Ah. So he had messed around with it. And then we did the same, a couple of my students at the time, and they found a recipe that uh, really it produced what independent raiders, both males and females, judged to be um, incredibly close. Um, so, yeah, so we, had, we actually had, went through the process of having independent raiders, you know, sort of, uh, these are members of our lab, but we all went in separately and then made ratings and we found uh, a recipe, I guess, that just tweaking the amount of flour and, you know, the amount of various ingredients. Um, I really don't 
Actually, there, there was no taste testing involved. In there was one. no taste <laughs> testing. This was just, you know, feeling it. I think that yeah. other people have done taste test things as well. Probably, um, yeah. yeah. So we found that, and he used that, and the idea was to get it as close as possible to the real thing. Um, and then to make the case that what he was finding, he actually was using a dildo, inserting it into this fake vagina, and then documenting that, yes, indeed, this dildo, which is constructed to, to look and feel and behave like a real penis, actually does extract a huge proportion of the previous ejaculate, keeping in mind, of course, that it was a simulated uh, semen. Um, in other words, I think what that work showed is not that he's proven, for example, that the, hu- the human penis evolved as a semen displacement device, but I think what it did show is that it's not an absolutely ludicrous hypothesis. Um, but I don't know that you really needed that work to show that because, of course, as you just mentioned, there's, there's work in hundreds and hundreds of species uh, that document that this is not atypical. In species where you have sperm competition, you very often see the evolution of very complicated penises that go along with very complicated reproductive tracts. The more promiscuous the females, the fancier the penis you're going to end up. That's right. And the reason is the fancier the reproductive tract. I mean, you get a coevolutionary arms race between males and females. I mean, males will evolve the penis that attempts to extract a previous inseminate, uh, but then that puts selection pressures on females to thwart that attempt uh, to... Uh, basically uh, take advantage of females. And then you get the evolution of, the co-evolution of extraordinarily complex reproductive tracts in females, along with extraordinarily complex penises in males, the most famous being probably in the uh, various species of ducks and waterfowl, where you have uh, female reproductive anatomy and uh, the reproductive tract is super complicated and it goes off and spins around into blind alleys um, it's just utterly inefficient. Um, it, it, it's as if the female has built something to befuddle and trick uh, the incoming sperm. Um, and one can make the case that's precisely what's going on, which then puts selection pressures on males to solve this problem. Uh, and so it selects for males who produce ejaculates that can live longer, that can travel further distances, that can you know, back up when they hit the blind alley, and that sort of stuff. And, um, and ducks have, have uh, like corkscrew penises that kind of, lasso out there whip out there like a uh, like a uh, whip it, google i think you can just google um argentinian cork- ducks uh, yeah yeah, yeah. It, it, i i forget what i you know just corkscrew peanut duck penis yeah. or something like that but there's all sorts of videos where someone had um um got a male to kind of mount um i don't know if it was an actual female or or uh, a replica or something and then and then they put kind of a glass tube right next to it, and and you can see in right. slow motion this penis shoot out. It's absolutely yeah incredible. And this is um uh, what's kind of more incredible about it is is that a lot of birds don't have penises. They're not terribly aerodynamic. That's exactly um, right. And yeah. so, um, speaking of wild um. Speculation. When you're thinking about how something like this evolves, is it like, um, uh, so how about I'll just take a wild guess and then you can help um, correct me. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, So so you don't have this penis and you have um, like a lot of birds and a lot of insects kind of have, they just kind of plop out this sperm packet or they'll sit on top of a female and, and, um, kind of booge on the ground or whatever and and hopefully the female will go and sit in it and this is this uh 
or, you know, it's a lot easier than date night and all of these other things that That's we right. do. This, this is, this is incredibly easy from a male point of view. And, and, um, and so the problem with easy street is that there's going to be a lot of other males trying to get in on this. And now they're kind of, uh, want their sperm to get in and they're, uh, <laughs> on top of this other guy's stuff. And then after a while, um, you know, maybe you're, Maybe you're trying to bring resources to the female, trying to do something else to win favor. And then at that point, you are, now you're investing this energy. You want to make sure that the, the offspring is yours. And so if, if you start by maybe um, pressing these two holes together is, is a little closer to, oh, I'm, I'm getting a little closer there. And that's, uh, I think, a coital kiss. Is that what it's yeah, called? Cloacal. Uh, yeah. Co- uh, oh yeah, yeah. Co- a coacal kiss, and but it's um, also a coital kiss. That's yeah, right. yeah, and and then and then maybe you get like a little bump after time that allows you to get out, and then a That's little right. further, and then and then from there the penis just kind of evolves from those beginnings. That could well be the case. That doesn't seem outrageous to me. And yeah, what is interesting is that as you mentioned, uh, penises are are quite rare in birds. Um, most birds, even birds. Uh, for which there's very intense sperm competition, nevertheless, don't have a penis. So they just have these cloacal uh, openings. Uh, males and females have very similar clo- cloacal openings. Um, but at any rate, the, the logic that you presented is is one reasonable sort of way in which you can get the evolution of um, a inseminating device. In other words, a penis. And uh, I also, um, uh, you know, getting back to um, the the issue of rape it, isn't it also the case that these these females tend to so so they have kind of these females have built a maze through which these males have to penetrate yep. and uh and the guys have these kind of corkscrew penises that help them navigate the maze but um it's my understanding that um oftentimes um uh when rape occurs it's it's that a male from like another flock is coming in and maybe trying to rape like a, a stranger. And so, um, so having to do with kind of female choice, females, when they have guys that they're into, they can kind of arch their back and kind of straighten out this maze a little bit to make it easier for the guys that they are interested in populating with and harder for the ones that don't. Is yeah. That- yes. I think that's, that's absolutely correct. Um, not only in terms of just, um, you know, not, um, well, in terms of remaining still, for example, that will make it more likely that he'll successfully inseminate her. But also there's um, sort of internal uh, female adaptation uh, to sort of make, to make the, you know, so, um, to carry some sperm preferentially up through uh, the reproductive tract. Um, um, so we know a little bit, we also know that uh, there are cervical, uh, there are crypts uh, where some sperm can be stored um, that's really interesting yeah. to me because that's yeah. that's very uh, that's a big deal in like insects especially. Definitely, yeah. I mean, there are sperm storage organs, spermatheca. And do you do you still is this still called like cryptic female choice or yeah. how, how do you define the the female end of it? What what's the um, terminology? Yeah, the term is uh, as it was originally presented. This was Randy Thornhill's term, cryptic female choice. That is choice that is cryptic. Uh, in the sense that we can't observe it occurring. That is, what we're talking about here are choices or selections that are being made by the female internal uh, to the female, that is, within her reproductive tract. So preferentially selecting uh, 
particular sperm for retention and for placement in uh, sperm storage organs, for example, or for up, uptake uh, further into the reproductive, uh, reproductive tract. Yep, so cryptic in the sense of what, what we can see. Because there's not just, um, it should be clear that this isn't just about like rape and anti-rape or anything like that. A, a, lot, a lot of times this is helpful. A female can, can get some sperm, store it, and wait and see if a better guy comes along and right. discharge that if she wants to or, right. or, or take on the new guys. Or, or right. some, sometimes she can um, store Maybe she's getting something else out of this guy in trade for this, and she actually isn't interested in his genes, but he brought her some food or whatever else it might be, and so she puts out knowing it. it's kind of this form of birth control. Yes, exactly. Um, and this is well-known across you know, insects, birds, um, uh, other mammals. In fact, there's uh, snakes, uh, but there are species that can store sperm. For example, I think there's a, there's a particular species of bat that can store sperm for several months. Um, and there are species of snake, for example, that can store it uh, for, uh, I believe, years. Um, so it, it, it opens up more opportunities for choice for females um, because they can sort of, again, preferentially sort of store away or block off uh, one male sperm and then use a favored male sperm. I believe a queen bee only mates one time in her That's entire right. life and then takes all of the sperm from those multiple matings in those fun few days or whatever. And, <laughs> right, and, right. And then uh, uses that for her offspring. And the, right. the idea uh, being um, too there is that you wouldn't, you don't want to put all of your um, sperm in one basket or you know, whatever the analogy would be. That's right. Yeah. And, and um, you know, if you... If you fall for this honey nut Cheerios guy, and and uh, you know you only get his sperm, and now now you got for the rest of your life, you're cranking out these annoying kids that won't shut up about cereal, and right, right, and uh, and so you want to kind of spread out your um, uh, your eggs, um, indeed, in, in case you get some bunk spunk. Um, I this is uh, this is something that I heard about, and I wasn't um, I wasn't completely sure about the source so um i'll ask you is there something in um in the human ejaculate um because there's like i, I read something that there's like um we have multiple um ejaculates when when uh, when we come it's like five or something like that right. and and not all of that is semen um i heard that some of like the like some of the last stuff is like this antitoxin stuff to kind of be a defense against other um, sperm that might come in. And then, and then that being said, the first one kind of breaks up this, this defense of other guys. And um, I, I don't know much about it. Is there something like that uh, that, that you know of? Oh, abs absolutely. I mean, we know that uh, human ejaculate, human semen, much like the semen of any other species, uh, contains just a slew of different chemicals. Um, it used to be thought that all of these chemicals were designed just to protect the sperm uh, and to basically provide them with a, an environment, an environment in which they could live and, and swim through. Um, because we know that the reproductive tract is actually typically, in, particularly in humans, uh, it's, not, um, it's not a pleasant place for sperm. Uh, it tends to be particularly acidic for example. And so some of the early work suggested that, well, you know, you have this ejaculate, um, which actually very small part of it is actually sperm. Uh, most of it is just various other chemicals and constituents. Mm. 
And the truth is we, we really don't know a lot about, um, we certainly don't know a lot about the evolutionary function of any of these chemicals. We, we know some, um, but I think we're now starting to ask these kinds of questions. Why this chemical? Why that chemical? And there is early work um, by Baker and Bellis um, where they suggested that uh, the latter part of an ejaculate actually is likely to be, is likely to include various chemical constituents that make life difficult for any subsequent ejaculate. Uh, while at the same time, the upper environment um, sort of provides the n- nutrients for the sperm of the initial ejaculate to be on their way. Um, a lot of that is speculative, but it's not outrageous in the sense that that's very typical of what you see of sperm throughout the animal world and the insect world. Um, it's typically, it includes a variety of different chemical components, each one of which in many species have been identified to solve some particular adaptive problem, to serve some function, um, including so-called, um, you know, kamikaze or killer sperm, um, or various constituents of an ejaculate that appear to be designed to sort of seek out um, rival ejaculate or rival sperm and kill them. Um, so it's not... So, yeah. uh, and how does that... Ha- these? Because uh, I, I have heard something of like a kamikaze yeah. sperm, sort of. What, what's happening there? Yeah, well, so um, this particular hypothesis, I mean, it's not... Um, other work has been presented in non-humans, but it got a lot of play in the late 80s, early, uh, late 80s, mid 90s, because Baker and Bellis were studying humans. And they made this argument that the reason that humans have these 14 different sperm morphs, which they do, and they were talking just about the sperm morphs or types. Um, they argue that some of these types aren't intended to fertilize. They're intended to, they use the terms seek and destroy rival sperm. And they actually refer to it as sperm warfare. And in many sense, it is. Uh, but of course, people get a little funny when you start applying your speculations to humans. And I think it irritated a lot of people. Right. Um, but, I, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I know some of the criticism is that um, we're anthropomorphizing. I mean, people are oh, sure. always saying that. about. Uh, so, so, you know, when, when sperm competition is just discovered, it's like uh, it's, it's very kind of male-driven um, to men's, Sperm or multiple men's sperm competing over this thing, and then, and and then, um, and then, here comes this female cryptic um, selection comes along, and now every everyone's looking at it from this female choice point of view because that's the hot thing. So, um, so so there has been some biases o- over the years, but do you do you feel like I because I wanted to ask you one of the reasons why I brought up your work from. 1997 was I was curious just how much um, you've seen this field change um, in that amount of time. um, Well, in some ways, I've seen it change greatly. And and in a lot of ways, um, it doesn't seem to be atypical. So you start out with a field that tends to be male dominated. um, And it is the case that a lot of that early work was on sperm competition and it was heavily male focused. you know, and then it wasn't until the mid '80s or or a little bit later where uh, people started talking about female cryptic choice. And wait a second, uh, the argument was made, and it's you know, it's it seems silly that it took so long to, to make this argument, but the argument was made that females are not likely to be passive sperm receptacles. I mean, they're likely to have an interest here uh, in in this this evolutionary game of sorts. And indeed, uh, the more we look, the more we appreciate that females have a profound role in 
sperm competition and in which sperm are used to fertilize uh, the female's eggs. Um, and so the field has changed very much uh, uh, in that sense, just as in biology, it has changed that way, in that sense in psychology as well as in, in evolutionary psychology. So now there's a huge amount of work on the effects of ovulatory cycle status. Um, I know you spoke with Marty Hazelton. Yeah. She and her colleagues have done some just brilliant work mm-hmm. um, looking at the effects of ovulatory cycle status. I mean, this is a female-centered um, sort of effect um, that has profound um, consequences on the interactions between men and women. And that's not something that was, I mean, it was hardly even mentioned and not even in the early nineties. Um, and so there certainly has been a, a massive shift, um, not away from sperm competition and, and a male focus, but a shift in the sense of incorporating, um, and very reasonably so, uh, the fact that females are likely to play a huge role, um, in, what are, what are really more appropriately thought of as co-evolutionary arms races between males and females. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, to me, that's her work and then your work on sperm competition is, is one of the um, most amazing things because it really illustrates that, um, no, not everything is just society's influence on, right. on these gender roles and and everything else and and it, this life isn't face value we kind of take things for granted how how much stuff is going on under the surface and i think right. it's really highlighted by things like um ovulation shifts and sperm competition yeah and um for sure i i was i was curious um i have several different um questions but i, I was wondering if if some of the, some of this, um, well, first off, how have the tools changed um, over the years in being able to understand, like, have the you know, sperm recipes been getting better? <laughs> have, right, has right. There, you know, has technology helped improve um, some of this research? Um, absolutely. I mean, just speaking um, for my own work, we actually have now have just recently established here at Oakland University um, a human semen analysis laboratory. So in addition to collecting self-report data and partner report data, a lot of our work has focused on just what people tell us about how long they've been apart from their partners and, and that sort of thing. But now what we can do is we can actually, uh, co- we actually collect ejaculates um, and we can now correlate basically um, changes, shifts in the parameters of an ejaculate with shifts in psychological uh, sort of experiences and the reports of men and women in relationships. So it's very exciting for us. I mean, and, and this is a, this is a, a major advance because now the equipment, I mean, as with anything that's technologically sophisticated over the last decade or so, it's, be, it's actually become affordable. I mean, the sort of equipment that we have here uses laser optics to report back in 75 seconds, 17 different parameters of semen, that kind of equipment, not Five years ago, seven or eight years ago, would have cost half a million. I mean, we paid about twenty thousand, um, but it also does it in about. It gives you these parameters in about seventy-five seconds, which I mean, it used to take four to six hours to count sperm and to look at the parameters, and that's a, a very significant investment. Um, but now uh, you, we can actually do this, and we actually have uh, started our started collecting data um, from uh, guys who are bringing in their samples and and completing a variety of, of questionnaires. And so we can actually add to um, what we know by looking at some of the changes in uh, the parameters of ejaculates as well. 
this is what I wanted to ask you. And I was, I, I got stuck there because I was trying to think of what, what my question was. It was this, it was, um, it, so you're, you're doing all of this work about sperm and things like that. Yep. Do, you, do you ever, um, because I think most of the listeners are probably hearing about a lot of this stuff for the first time. I'm hearing about some of this stuff sure, for the sure. first time and I've, I've looked into it quite a bit. And um, and it's absolutely mind blowing. And I think what it has to say about how life works and um, and human nature is, is really profound. However, we're talking about sex. We're talking about sperm. This is, uh, you know, some people might seem think this is kind of silly work. Do you do you have um, difficulty sometimes like writing these grants and 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 getting funding for um, for some of this work? Yeah, I mean, I think it's gotten, um, it's much more widely accepted now than it was when we started doing this kind of work, you know, 15, 20 years ago. But it has, you know, even there, it hasn't been easy. Um, yeah, sure. I mean, I definitely, um, there was a point in time at my previous university, at Florida Atlantic University, where my, my lab was effectively shut down for about 18 months. Not formally, but uh, we had a dean at the time who just did not appreciate asking people about sex and about their <laughs> sex lives. Um, and that, I mean, so in that case, it was just somebody who had to hang up with with sexuality. Right. But on top of that, now you start throwing evolution into the mix and female sexuality in particular. You know, God forbid, you know, females have desires and you know that they yeah, actually have right. some some role to play. That yeah, it can make people you know it can unsettle people. Um, but for the most part, I mean, we just sort of persisted. Um, I thought about my advisor, and he once gave me. Uh, I mean, he used to have a. He had a much more difficult time early in his career studying just sex differences. Talking about David Buss. Yes, David Buss. Um, be, uh, he'll be on in a few episodes. From yeah. And so, you know, his, I remember many times where he told me, you know, look, the data, the data will tell the story in the end. Just keep fighting, keep pushing, you know, keep publishing. And so, you know, what it means is, uh, you know, we have to work a little bit harder. We have to publish a little bit more, a little bit more, you know, um, we have to do, well, that's what I tell my students is you got to work a little bit harder if you're going to do this. You know? Right. It's not right. It's not fair, but that's life. Yeah, I mean, I I tried to when I first started um, bringing some of this stuff into my act. Um, I I thought, well, sexual sexual selection will be a really wonderful way to introduce people into some of these ideas because I mean, I'm essentially um, paid to tell dick jokes anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, yeah. maybe, maybe I can. Slip in a little information sure, al- sure. along the way and it trick right. people into learning something. And, um, and, and so I found it to be a really useful tool for connecting with, um, with people in, in these small towns in the middle sure. of the country that might have otherwise um, not uh, maybe been kind of against some of these ideas or not as right. open to them. Sure. And, but but the opposite side of it is is sometimes I get like oh this guy's just talking about sex the whole time and and like no I'm actually this is important stuff right. I mean we are all here because of reproduction this is why we're here sure this is uh, in a very simplified way what we're here to do um, sure. I mean how we got here in the first place that's right and this is. This drives so much of our behavior, so much of what we don't understand about ourselves has to do with reproduction. And, um, and so it's, uh, you know, it's one of the, as a comedian, I'm like, you know, sometimes I'm like, well, I've, 
I'm just a comedian. I don't take life too seriously. And then when people don't take me seriously, I'm like, I'm an artist. Damn it, take me seriously. Right, 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 right. right. But um, <laughs> but that is interesting. Um, it's it's encouraging to hear that things have been getting easier um, in this regard for you to do some of your work. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think the you know the data have accumulated in a in a big way. Um, and I think that really is part of it is that it's, you know, evolutionary psychology generally has become much more sort of prevalent. It's now entered into the mainstream. I mean, now you can't find an intro psych textbook that doesn't have significant sections on evolutionary psychology. Um, well, you probably can, but it's very unlikely. It's very rare. Right. Whereas, you know, when I was in college and, and it wasn't that long ago, you know, in the early 90s, there was never a mention of evolutionary psychology. I mean, Unless David say, Buss yeah. wrote the first um, textbook on it. Yeah, that's right. And that was in 99. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, things have, I mean, there's still a lot of misunderstanding and a lot of political axe grinding going on, uh, but it's becoming sort of pathetic, uh, whereas before it was actually getting a lot of play. Um, right. Now it's just sort of, um, yeah, at some level, you know, you, you kind of expect uh, some of that. Right. Um, so, I'm curious, does sometimes does learning about um, this stuff make, um, make sex like in your personal life and everything seem a little silly to you. I, I mean, for me, uh, you know, it's not that I don't necessarily enjoy sex as much as I ever had, but sometimes you learn about this stuff and, and like a good example would be the honeybee. You look at this male that goes and, um, you know, he's competing with a thousand other guys or so and flies way up in the air chasing after this lady. And his this is going to be his one shot at mating. And so he has this adaptation because he wants as much sperm as possible, fertilizing these eggs where his testicles explode. That's right. Yeah. And then uh, and his little poo bear sticks up in her <laughs> honey pot and... Um, uh, which do you, is it called corking? Is that the actual scientific? Um, I don't know. I don't. Name? I haven't heard that. Uh, no. <laughs> or, we'll call it that. Uh, yeah, might as well. Sure. Um, and and breaks it off and actually breaks one off in her so that other guys can't uh, can't get in there. And then he falls to the ground and dies. He's from done. Dicklessness, I suppose. He's done. And uh, and and you look at some stuff like that. It's like. Well, if you could explain to this guy that he was going to be a goner as soon as this happened, right. maybe he'd be like, you know, I'm not going to mess with this. Maybe I'll go off and and yeah. enjoy the world and smell the flowers and do all of that other sure. um, stuff. And and I mean, we can we can look at anytime you look at animal mating or you show people animal mating or you know have these funny YouTube videos or you see dogs humping at the dog park or something like that it's like well this is look at this silly behavior and we <laughs> laugh at them can you believe yeah. they do that sure and uh meanwhile us humans do busy ourselves with mating way more than most any species has sure. a mating season and they that's right their behavior goes completely insane for a week or two and then they just go back to normal and right um live their lives in a more efficient way and for us it's kind of always mating season and we're always doing this advertising and obsessing over sex sure and debating about it and it's just uh, you know, we're concerned about the morality involved. Right, right. Is this okay to research? Should we be? And at a certain point, it's like, 
man, it, are we spending too much time with right. this stuff? Right, it, right. Do you ever get that um, feel? It, I mean, because existentially, all of sex is completely absurd. But, you know, try telling that to my erection. It's not going to listen sure. to you. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, I yeah, I have fleeting moments. I mean, I don't have any special insight into, you know, into this. But, sure, I mean, I can... Um, I actually, uh, uh, a better example that I often give in class um, is that I, sorry to shift the topic just a little bit, but no. I can, um, so we know a good deal about parental love and feelings of parental love. I can at one, I can appreciate that, um, you know, that my children are effectively parasites. Um, yeah. And, you know. Uh, you, you, tell, you remind them of that once in yeah. a while, I'm sure. And are, are <laughs> just as I am, the vehicle, just a, a temporary vehicle for my genes. So are my children temporary vehicles for their genes, which half of which I presume are mine. Yeah. Um, nevertheless, I do love my children. I mean, I do care about them. I do worry about them. I do suffer when they suffer. Um, and so, you know, there are these feelings that, you know, it is kind of absurd because you can recognize that we're, you know, we're a little more than meat puppets in some sense, but it doesn't make the feelings go away or it doesn't make right. the feelings feel less genuine. I mean, I do feel like um, some of this stuff and understanding our instincts, yes, it can make you question, is all of this rather silly? But at the same time, you can you can kind of hack the system to be like, well, this is, here's the things that my, in, that feel pleasurable because of this, you know, they're driving me to do these evolutionary things. Um, and then here's the things that make me feel worse because... Um, because I have a, you know, I've given this drive to get more resources and, sure. and knowing that I, I know that no matter what, that's never going to shut off. So, <laughs> so maybe I don't need to be trying to get a yacht and, you know, a mansion and that's not actually going to lead to happiness. Whereas, um, things like forming social connections and all right. of this sure. kind of thing, which also has an evolutionary purpose can um, be just as simple and, and a lot more meaningful. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, I think in that sense, yes, I mean, it has affected, you know, sort of probably not enough, but it has affected how I think about life. I mean, as an evolutionary psychologist, I mean, this is a, a frame of mind. I mean, it's a way of seeing life. Mm -hmm. um, I can't, for me, once I learned about evolution by natural selection and when I, once I learned about, you know, sort of the process and, and adaptations, I mean, I couldn't turn it off. And so everything I do and see. I mean, see that's say, why I'm here. It's completely yeah. changed the way that I look at the world. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, it finally gave a satisfying answer to, you know, why we're here. And, mm -hmm. uh, and but the, the functional purpose of why we're here doesn't necessarily sort of, um, we can nevertheless have other reasons uh, that you can build on. Um, so at any rate, it does, I think it does impact uh, the way I think. Um, but, it, you know, it's it's hard to keep those two things, you know, hard to integrate them. And it's sometimes it's hard to, you know, to avoid them clashing as well. Right. Um, well, thank you so much for your time. You were a wonderful um, guest and uh, a lot of great insight. Um, what uh, charity of the week? What is it? Um, I th Yeah. I suggest uh, the Richard Dawkins Foundation for Reason and Science, uh, which contributes um, significantly to you know, advancing uh, the cause of science and reason, as well as uh, to a variety of other uh, charitable causes. 
Fantastic. And if people want to um, learn more, uh, let's say about sperm competition in general, you got any? Uh, you got any good uh, book referrals for me? Sure. Um, well, I would say, can I plug my own stuff? Absolutely. Please <laughs> so, do. Yeah. Okay. So uh, we have recently published a couple of volumes uh, with Oxford University Press. One of which uh, deals with uh, the title is the Handbook of um, sexual conflict, um, which addresses not just uh, male adaptations uh, to sperm competition, but also uh, female adaptations to thwart sperm competition or uh, to otherwise um, take advantage of the situation for female benefit. Uh, so that's one book um, and uh, a wonderful book that I think anybody could enjoy is, is a book by uh, Robin Baker called Sperm Wars, mm-hmm. uh, which sort of brings to life a lot of sort of technical stuff we've been talking about in these short sort of soft porn stories, basically. Uh, but then he's, he provides the sort of the background, uh, the, you know, the data and so forth after telling the story. Um, so it's, it's a great, it's a great book. Um, it's easy to read. Um, you learn a lot. I haven't read that one yet. I'll have yeah. to, uh, I did. Oh, I saw when I was looking through your journals, you reviewed a billion wicked thoughts, which I yes. read recently. You yeah. enjoyed it. I did. I thought it was great. I really enjoyed it. I, I've been saying just recently, I've, I mean, we've done a little bit of work taking advantage of porn basically and the data, the monumental amount of data out there in, uh, you know, on the internet. Um, but they make, you know, an incredible case for, I mean, this is a goldmine of, of, you know, human psychology is what is it that People, you know, what is it that arouses people? I mean, that can tell you something about the underlying sort of design of the mind. So well done. These guys took oh, yeah. billions of porn videos and crunched this data. And, incredible. And, and they have, I mean, everything from the evolutionary reasons to, um, to the neurology of, you know, what's happening in the brain the moment before this stuff is happening. And, right. and um, just some really big ideas. And, Absolutely. Um, fantastic stuff. Well, uh, thank you for sharing um, your big ideas with me. This is absolutely fantastic. Go to toddkshackleford.com and you can check out more of his work and, um, and, and do some surveys online and advance, uh, advance science. Um, thank you guys so much for listening. Make sure and go to the herewearepodcast.com website to find out more about Todd and Charity of the Week and to check out past guests and figure out how to share this with everyone you've ever met in your life and tune in next week as I go through Chicago to talk with Nick Epley about his fantastic book which is coming out on paperback called Mindwise it's a fantastic wonderful book and we have a, a fantastic conversation he tells me about the many hidden psychological benefits of talking with strangers And I try to defend the introvert. So uh, we had a fantastic conversation. Make sure and check it out. And I'll talk to you guys next week. Thank you so much. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are.
Hello, I'm Kyle Ayers. I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it. And here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL. The 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh, my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic? Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Ying Yang Twins. <laughs> Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would, he even, why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype <laughs> and that he has come for his cocaine. <laughs> As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P-E in Spanish, <laughs> oh my God. he spots his dear friend who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. <laughs> Scarface yells out his signature line. <laughs> Ciao, Bella. It's me, Scarface. <laughs> oh, my 